Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. I think we want to start with the novels, and I also should declare a special interest, which isn't just that I've worked with John on his pieces at the LRB, but that I've been a sort of devoted follower of him for a very long time, since before I started working at the LRB. And I, the very first uh, proof copy of a novel I ever got hold of was this, which is the, the Debt to Pleasure, which is a, was a, a great excitement for me in 1996. But I think one of the things I wanted to talk about with your novels, what's sort of so extraordinary about them is that they're all so different. You know, you don't, you're not a crowd pleaser who repeats your last, your, your last trick. They each begin with a very different premise. And I wanted you to say something about well, how I, all that works. I, I wouldn't mind um, being a crowd pleaser. <laughs> and I, I really like writers who work within a... The metaphor I always have in mind is a fixed frame. So you sort of know the scale and dimension and, in a way, the texture of the work. I, a writer I think of um, as a master of that is Anita Bruckner. Yes. Um, I've just reading, I've just finished Look at Me, which in a way is identical to the 20 other books, um, but is also subtle and moving and precisely the variations on the theme within this fixed canvas yes. are what becomes very compelling. I think Graham Greene is another writer who, you know, in a sense, you know the size. Although it has different, the, yeah. different types. Yeah, but I, I, you know, I do think of him as being working within a kind of mm. set aesthetic. So, I, I, you know, I deeply admire that, but I, I can't do it. Mainly, I think, because I, I always feel that I've used up the, an impulse in right. writing a book. The, the sort of thing that made me want to do it isn't there anymore. It, and it's a sort of, it's been excavated or it's been, or it's run out of steam or I, I sometimes think that it's like you know, Bluebeard's Attic. Hmm. You know, there's a room with a terrible secret in it and you're not, no one's ever allowed to go in that. And I feel a novel an unwritten novel is like that. There's something about it that bothers me. There's something I can't get out of my mind. Yes. And it's nagging me, and there's something secret, something charged. And writing a book just sort of, you know, the door is open. The secret's gone. It's not, it's not there and it anymore. And, and I, I, I can't go back. And, um, I've got absolutely no objection in principle yeah. to the, the thought of going back and doing it again, but I just sort of, I, d I don't have that, that particular va-va-voom. Yes, <laughs> I understand. But something different happened, as, as, as you've, 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 you've said recently with this one, that it, it came to you in a dream. Mm. I was Which part way through another novel, um, and I still am actually, I'm still stuck at exactly the point. I was, and I started having a recurring dream about a man standing on, on his own on, the, on a wall in the dark and the cold and with the, the water on the other side. And it, it sounds like a, an anxious dream, but it wasn't. There was something kind of comforting or reassuring about it. It was an image of sort of stability 
or safety. And night after night, I had this dream. And, and it was a sort of liminal state dream. It was as I was going to sleep. And as sometimes happens with those dreams, you can start then sort of deliberately telling them to yourself. You, know, you can partly will it. So I sort of go back to this place every night. And then I started to wonder, firstly, who he was. And then that, that question quickly gave way to asking what the world was. Because mm. it, didn't, it sort of didn't feel and like... what had happened. And, and what had happened. So, and I realised, I quite soon realised that I was imagining a world after catastrophic climate change. That the, the reason this, you know, the water was on the other side of this wall um, was because the world had just irrevocably changed. And, and so and then, then I started thinking about you know, how that world had got to be where it was and what it would be like to live in it. Yeah. And the thought of what it would be like to live in it, in a sense, turned into the, the story. So it's an odd, it's a thing that's never happened to me before as a, as a sequence. It was dream, figure from dream, uh, the world, and then the, and then the narrative. And so it was very kind of, you know, it was very much a sequence. And then I started, and then I eventually thought that the, the only way I'd get it out of my head was to, was to write it. Yes. Uh, and so briefly I was working on, in parallel, this book and the other, the other book. Um, and then I realized that I, you know, had to pick one and finish it. Yeah. And because I, my hunch was that this was a shorter book than the other one. And you know, that I, I, would, I, I would be able to kind of um, put it to bed sooner. So I sort of, I bet on, you know, finishing, finishing the wall. And, and I think in the process of asphyxiated the other book, because I haven't, I haven't no. been able to go back, go back to it. Um, Next it's month. A, it's a nice 40,000 word long paperweight at the moment. Right. But can you say a little bit about what consciously was in the background in terms of in terms of climate change, in terms of other things that you were focused on, awareness. What, 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 were the, what were the concrete thoughts about the way the world is changing that led to what's turned out in well, the novel? I think, I, think, uh, I think maybe, in a way, if I, was, if I was thinking more sustainedly about climate change, I wouldn't have needed to write the book. I think, because mm -hmm. um, the way I've done it is I, I can sort of bear to read it some of the time, but quite a lot of the time I just can't bear it. The information about... The, you know, the, the, the news, the, the story. The latest report from the IPCC. Yeah, yeah. and, and um, you know, we all know where the trend lines are headed. I wrote a piece on it and read a ton of books about it when, when George Monbiot's book Heat came out, so whenever that was, I think it was around 2005, 2006. I so I was very up on the science then and then only kind of keep up with it intermittently. But there was a thing that really lodged in my head from 2013. There's a paper in Nature, and it was a group of geographers and biologists and climate experts at the University of Hawaii, led by a man called Camilo Mora. And they published this paper, with, which came up with a new idea, which they called Climate Departure. Mm -hmm. And they'd used a ton of data from different places, five different data points, and had built this model of how the climate was changing. And the climate departure 
is the, the point at which, so this is the band of temperatures we live in, you know, some years hotter than others, some years colder, and the world's gradually getting warmer, so that band is changing. And climate departure is the point at which the, the new band, in the new band, the coldest day, coldest year in the future is warmer than the warmest year in the past. Ah. So it means that we're, we're living in a, a new reality. It means we're living in a reality that human beings have never in, inhabited. I mean, just in fact, literally yesterday, I just saw that there are 401 part, parts per, um, I forgot what the unit is, parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. There have been 401 parts per million before, but never while human beings have existed. Wow. And similarly, you know, the Earth has been that hot before, it's just not where we were here. Yes. And the thing about climate departure is that it comes to different places at different times. It's a sort of rolling process. And because we see, you know, um, a lot of news about climate comes from the Arctic and the Antarctic because it's very visible. The annual cycle is very clear and you How can much see ice is melting. Exactly. It's sort of very, you know, it's easy to literally see with your own eyes. But actually, the, the ecologies of the tropics are much more sensitive because the Arctic gets wild variations anyway, yes. but the tropics don't. And the, the ecology is, is much more fragile. And it's for that reason that you're already starting to see impacts like um, coral. 19% of all the world's coral is already dead. And there was one um, marine, uh, marine heat wave, they called it, in 2016, killed 60% of the Great Barrier Reef in one go. And it's not coming back. I mean, those, things, those losses are irreversible. Yes. And as I say, they start at the tropics and then roll northwards. And this process of climate change, the projections are it's coming really soon. So um, Manokwa, and they studied cities around the world, and Manokwari, which is the capital of Indonesian Papua New Guinea, reaches it in 2020, Kingston, Jamaica, 2023, and then mega cities like Jakarta, 2029, Mexico, 2033. Miami? Uh, I don't remember Miami, but that would be early. It wouldn't be long after Mexico. And Earth as a whole reaches it in 2047. So I sort of read that, was appalled by it, didn't know what to do with my feelings about it, my thoughts about it. Um, but in a sense, I think it's one of the direct influences on, on yes. the war. I think yes. I sort of processed it in, yes. in this sort of dream and in this in this world, because I, 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 mean, I haven't spent a decade thinking about it, but it, I, I do feel as if on some level I have I spent a decade clearly in some unconscious way It's back to bluebeard blue secret rooms. It's yeah. something you couldn't really yeah. completely access. And exactly, and access. perhaps exactly, but precisely because I couldn't sort of... I mean, I sometimes think if I knew what to say about something, I wouldn't write a novel about it. Yes. You know, that... Because I do have an outlet, as you said, at the LRB. If, yeah. I, if I have a kind of clear view of something, I can write a piece about it. Yes. But it's things that are um, more inchoate, more troubling, and more multiple, yeah. in a way. Yeah, it's a way of processing the information. What I was going to ask is, is, is then, having decided that, that climate is the catastrophe that's, that's caused the, the figure from the dream to appear, you then presumably had to calculate, to work out what effects this is all having on society, on the relations between people, and, and I think everyone will have understood or, that 
this, the wall is encircling the whole of the whole of the island of Great Britain, where the beaches no longer exist. There's a the sea has encroached, and the main character of the novel, the narrator Kavanagh, is given a role that the society he's, he's a defender. So everyone in society is 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 either tasked to be standing on the wall preventing the others from getting in. And could you say a little bit about the about society as it's as it's as it's come to be in this dystopia? Well I um, and that, what I was thinking was uh, I sort of I, I reverse engineered it from the the map of the world with four degrees of warming. Right. Which is the trajectory we're on. Um, the International Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, what they, I mean, they, they, it's probabilistic. They give a band, a kind of fan, they call it, of outcomes. From about right. one and a half to... Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's different degrees. But the central projection, if nothing changes, 3.5 to 5 degrees of warming. Um, I can't remember if it's within a century or by the end of this century, but it's, you know, it's too soon, either way. Yes. And there are various maps of the world four degrees warmer. And if you look at those maps, it, it, it does imply not just a completely different planet, but it, it's something like a world war is what it implies in terms of the impact yes. on everybody's lives, even in countries which are relatively less affected. So an island nation in the North Atlantic is actually quite lucky by, by global standards. Mm. But um, it still would change, in, in my imagining it, it would change absolutely everything about the way society works. So it is, in effect, a kind of something like a world war, and everybody has to serve two years on the wall. Uh, life is quite straightened and constrained. And this, the kind of basic form of the social contract is you spend, every citizen of the country has to spend two years guarding the country. Yes standing guard on the wall. And if the others, as they're called, which is the starving, desperate, tens of millions of people fleeing the rest of the planet, if, uh, if the others get over the wall on your shift, on your watch, you are then put to sea and become an other yourself. That's the very cheery premise. <laughs> it's a frightening future we face. You said that um, you were careful not to read other dystopian fiction during, I mean, presumably before you wrote it, while you were writing it. But since then, you've, you've gone back and reread 1984 and Brave New World. Uh, and I, you wrote in the Financial Times recently very interestingly about what, who was right and who was wrong and what the differences were. But one of the interesting areas that you, you discussed of their, uh, their uh, points of difference was to do with sex. That Orwell, in, in Orwell, the state prohibited it. Huxley, this is a, a future where everyone was getting it on with everyone else. Your, your version isn't really like either of those, is it? And it's sort of more outwardy, and that, that given the horrible state of the world, nobody wants to, I love the way that these capital letters, nobody wants to breed. And s s say something about, about that, about well, those it's one of the, um, again, one of the premises would be, you know, the, the world, I was very interested in the idea of what the world looks like if it's broken. Yes. 
what it's like to live in a world that by universal consent is, is broken. Yeah. And, you know, there are already people who choose not to have children for exactly that reason. Yes. And in this version of the future, that's, almost, that's the sort of mainstream view. People choose not to have children. But the society needs them. So there are all sorts of privileges and rights accrue if you become what they call a, a breeder. I mean, for, apart from anything else, if you have a kid, you, you get off the wall. Yes. Yes, that uh, makes sense. I mean, Atwood wasn't in my mind. In fact, none of the... Because I hadn't... I didn't think I was writing a dystopia. I mean, yeah. it, it's one of the things that you learn when a book comes out is how... Yeah, a label. It's, it's, yeah, because um, in a way, I almost thought of it as a sort of n form of non-fiction. Yes. Once the premise is accepted. Yes. Uh, I didn't think, here's another thing I'm making up. No. I thought, oh, here's another thing that m might be true. Well, this is a very clear that it all might be true. And each of those, the consequences of the premise is followed through so magnificently. Yeah. One of the things, I mean, a, a, again, this is to do with interpersonal relations, but it's the intergenerational thing, because clearly this is something we all feel between the generations it has been bequeathed us this situation that's going to unfold and it's it works wonderfully in the novel when Kavanagh they occasionally get time off from their their stint on the wall where it's freezing cold and horrible and they might be attacked at any moment by the hideous others uh, they get to go home and see their families which tends not to be much much fun does it we thought that you might read a little passage when Kavanagh goes home to see his mum and dad up in the north. They do two weeks on and two weeks off, which is what they did in the First World War. I remember the First is World it? War, seeing Harold Macmillan give an interview talking about the First World War, and he's like, of course, you know, it wasn't all that bad. And, you know, it was two weeks on, two weeks off, and, you know, when you weren't at the front, you know, there were girls. <laughs> Which is where I got that idea from. Yeah, so good. this is a bit that when he goes, he's gone home after his first stint. Um, there, I use the F word in this, and in deference to the setting, I'm going to change it to something else, but you can probably guess where it comes. I'll, I'll wave when it appears. None of us can talk to our parents. By us, I mean my generation, people born after the change. You know that thing where you break up with someone and say, it's not you. It's me. This is the opposite. It's not us, it's them. Everyone knows what the problem is. The diagnosis isn't hard. The diagnosis isn't even controversial. It's guilt, mass guilt, generational guilt. The olds feel they irretrievably screwed up the world, then allowed us to be born into it. You know what? It's true. That's exactly what they did. They know it, we know it, everybody knows it. To make things worse, the olds didn't do time on the wall because there was no wall, because there'd been no change, so the wall wasn't needed. This means that the single most important formative experience in the lives of my generation, the big thing we all have in common, is something about which they have exactly no clue. The life advice, the knowing better, the back-in-our-day wisdom, which apparently was a big part of the whole deal between parents and children once, 
just doesn't work. Want to put me straight about what I'm doing wrong in my life, Grandad? No thanks. Why don't you travel back in time and unscrew up the world and then travel back here and maybe then we can talk? It's fantastic. What I love about this section isn't only that it applies to the anger between generations, but that it just applies to the general way that parents and children treat each other in any case. And there's a wonderful moment in his brief time home when he's, you know, his mum is fussing around saying, what do you want for dinner? And are you going to go out to see his friends? And his dad is all silent and doesn't want to talk. And then they're delighted when he goes off back, back to work again on the wall, when, when they can watch, uh, watch the movie they've been putting off about, about surfing, which uh, is, uh, you know, what parents... So I, I think, I think all, all that's fantastic. But I did, uh, you know, I also wanted it to be the case that I think, you know, because it's a novel, it's not a thesis, and Kavanagh is, is telling the truth... In the, he's telling the truth about his feelings and he's telling the truth about how he sees it. Yes. But it's not clear that he's being fair. I mean, you, you often get that in arguments, perhaps especially family arguments, yes. that someone says thing, something that's completely true yes. from their perspective and yet you know, also not, not fair. And I, I did want to slightly leave that up to the reader, whether you know, his poor old mum and dad you know, are kind of... That's an accurate moral accounting indeed indeed it's very clear there are two sides and he is a narrator and perhaps we could talk about his his narration and i think there are some fabulous tricks you pull off in terms of how what information is released when because we've all revealed and you probably knew anyway what the premise is how it's set up but when, if you had heard nothing about the novel, there's a fantastic experience of reading it as you turn the first few pages where you're trying to figure out where you are, I mean, much as you were you know, trying to figure out your own dream. You don't know where this wall is. You know it's cold. You know it's boring. And then 17 pages in, you hear the name of his station, and it's Ilfracoon 4. Um, and then you figure out, oh, fantastic. And then a little later, you, you, he tells you that the whole perimeter of the wall is 10,000 kilometers. And you think, that sounds like it might just be, might just be Britain. And then I, I, I had to look this up. And I found that the circumference perimeter is 12,000 kilometers. So then, did you do all these calculations to work out how much the sea might have encroached? Uh, I, I did a bit, actually, yes. I mean, not, not obsessively, because I think... There's a, a curious thing about setting a book in a, a parallel or altered reality, which is that you have to know, you have to feel confident about how that world works. Yes. But if you put too much of that in, it becomes distracting, and you can end up explaining you know, yes. explaining all the cool features of the thing you just made yes. up. Yes. And I think you can do a lot in fiction, but it's one of the things I learned writing, writing Capital, which is set sort of around the time of the credit crunch, was that you have to be very careful about e- explaining. Yes. 
because it sort of, you know, the, it kind of kills the, kills the momentum of the story and uh, becomes very distracting and becomes an end in its own sake. And certainly with one of the reasons I ended up writing a non-fiction book about the credit crunch was to sort of quarantine a lot of the details I knew to avoid having a scene in the book Clever, where, you know, yes. as Nigel looked out the window towards the lights of Canary Wharf, he struggled to remember the definition of a collateralized debt <laughs> obligation. Yes. You know, you've got to be... And, and sort of explaining the details of an imaginary world, I felt, would, would do something similar. So I did, I did think quite a lot about, you know, they, they, they talk about the change in the book, but they never say what it is. Yes. And the, the sort of, you know, how the government works in this sort of as I say, wartime-like society and, you know, the, the details of how the war worked and all that. But uh, I thought it was important to both to know them yes. and insofar as possible to leave them out. Yes, and also narratively there's the sense that Kavanagh himself doesn't, as a narrator, doesn't understand a lot of what's going on and yeah. that's fabulous. There is, but there's a curious sort of, there's a curious thing, you notice it with TV adaptations, there's a funny thing about you can tell when there's stuff that exists in the imaginary world but isn't being put in. I, I, I notice it watching the, the Handmaid's Tale. Yes. That the, and you notice it with Game of Thrones too, that there's a sort of richness and detail and density to the first series, which comes from Atwood's book. Mm. And the second series is much thinner. It feels sort of attenuated and it's sort of the cruelty and violence of the world is more, it's the same in both books, but somehow yes. it's asphyxiating and oppressive in the second season, which isn't from Atwood's book. And I don't know, there's, a, there's an interesting thing about the, the texture of imagined worlds really can vary. And it's something, to, I think Ford Maddox Ford said that the uh, novelist needs to know what the, what the door handle feels like and how the door handle works, and then doesn't but need to describe to the door handle. Yes, yes. And I, I think in terms of all the stuff he, he doesn't know, there's, again, it's the relation between people, but there's another category of people in this society, is, it, is, is the help who were effectively slaves, aren't yeah. they? I mean, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a slave state yeah. um, that the characters don't realise they're living in. Kavanagh doesn't, Kavanagh doesn't see the moral reality of yes. the world he's in, except just, just out of his peripheral vision. Yes. He can, can just catch a glimpse of it. And um, at, at, at moments he thinks that one of the help might be a, a real person, as it were, rather than... But, he, ha but he has to sort of shut that down. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I've always been um, in interested by that perspective of the sort of obliviousness and the moral obtuseness. That's the thing that really yes. interests me. I remember when I worked briefly at Penguin, my, my boss coming in saying, brandishing book, says, so-and-so's written a novel about slavery. He's against it. <laughs> And I, mean, th th I think one of the best novels ever written about slavery is Valerie Martin's book, Property, which is it's an odd thing because it won one of the big prizes. It won the Orange Prize. And you never, ever, ever hear anyone talk about it because it says something that people don't want to know about because it's, the, it's from the slave owner's point of view. 
Wow. It's incredibly effective, powerful, overwhelming, short, clean, sort of vivid book um, that's entirely about the ingratitude of the slaves. And that's a, a perspective that really interests me, the people who just yes. don't see the thing that's morally straight in front of their faces. Yes, yes, fascinating. I think, uh, again, it's a little, it's a business about how you do what you do, but it's about, it's a question about, it's one of the features as a, I think you've got across about life on the wall, it's, it's threatening, dangerous, but also mind-numbingly boring as you freeze there for two weeks on end with this very carefully enumerated, Kavanagh's very good at explaining the rhythm of the days when you get your meals, you have a fantastic, taught, riveting sense of way of describing boredom. I don't know how you do that. But then the, the book also has an extraordinary way of changing rhythm. And there's a sort of pastoral, bucolic interlude in the Lake District. And, and then there are moments which we won't get into because they're later on in the novel where things move at this extraordinary flurry of bloody activity in it. How do you, how did you think about pace and how do you make boring stuff gripping to read? Well, I think I was interested in what, you know, what it's like. Effectively, they're doing a form of national service, yeah. which isn't that distant or it's not that far away. People my age in continental Europe were still doing national yeah. service when I was a kid, when I was hitchhiking around Europe. And, and I've always been interested by that. And those experiences are often about this incredibly tedious day yeah. that only gets broken up by things that are completely terrifying. Mm. And my, my dad was in the army, he was in the Australian army, and said that it's, you know, life in the army is either boring or you think you might die. And um, I, I was really interested by that. I wanted to catch that texture of experience where people are just literally counting the days as they go past. Yes. And the only thing worse than nothing happening is if something does happen. <laughs> I think there's actually inherently something quite dramatic about, it's almost like the thing Hitchcock said about if you film two people sitting across a desk having a conversation, it looks, you know, it can be really dull. But if you put, just show an image of someone putting a bomb under the table and walking out of the room and then the two people are having the same conversation and that, the audience is on the edge of their seat and I thought that, that this world is one like that when they're on, yeah. the, on the wall for two years they're in a kind of liminal state they can lose their lives at any moment yes and so the sort of sense of dailiness is really cut with this prospect of complete terror that could happen at any moment. I was interested by that, not just in an imaginative way, but what that's actually like in real life. But I, think, I do think dailiness is very important in a novel. A novel has to have a feeling of just the texture of yes. time for its, for its characters. Which makes this paradigmatic as a novel. I mean, it works, the dailiness is, is, is its real feature for that first section. That well, he, nothing you know, quite I, like it. I, I, I did want to get that feeling of you know, um, it's famously in places like Vietnam, you know, everyone can immediately recite the American soldiers, you know, to, 
everyone knew their number of days to go yeah. all the time. It's yeah. in the forefront of their forefront of their minds. Yes. Did you talk to soldiers? I've known soldiers because I was at the army. There were lots of soldiers around in my childhood because I grew up in Asia and in these sort of post-colonial bits. Then there were always army people around. I was at the army school when I was a kid, and, and so I've known soldiers my, my whole life. And don't instinctively, I know on the left people often instinctively recoil in horror when they see a uniform, but I, I don't particularly because you know I was at school with those kids, and um, I've always been interested by the the kind of parallel reality that military people live in. Yeah, and it's almost like a and now it's so marginal to the British Army I think it's 80,000 soldiers it's far fewer than there are police yeah. smallest it's ever been proportionally so in a weird way it's almost like a counterculture and we don't hear from it that we don't yeah. hear from yeah uh, that's marvelous thank you John I think it's time for us to have questions I have enjoyed your novels very much and I'm wondering if you might say a few words about your choice of first person rather than third person, as in the past, for this one. Thank you. Well, uh, the other book, the other, the, the famous. Uh, I don't want to sound like Truman Capote, who was always going on about this amazing book he was writing and then never did, because uh, you always sound a little mad when you talk about an unwritten book. I think. Um, but the other novel is is a third person thing with lots of different narrators and lots of different perspectives. And one of the reasons I set out to, I chose this one instead, was because sometimes it's actually simpler to write a first-person book, because you can see, you can see the line through it more clearly, and once you've got, I found this in the past, that once you, with a, a, a first-person narrator, once you've got the character's voice, in a way you've sort of, there are other problems to solve, but you have solved the main difficulty of the book. And I found it writing my first novel. I sort of knew lots of things about the way he should sound, and because there are very structural things that he, you know, he's about a crazy foodie who murders lots of people. So he had to speak, sound convincingly obsessive about food, but then you realize he's someone actually darker than that. And that almost created a kind of algebraic formula for him. Um, but I couldn't hear it. I couldn't. Find it. And it, it ended up, it was like trying to tune in a radio. And then one, and then one day I actually got a sentence popped in my mind. It was, it was there is an erotics of dislike, I remember, which is about 30 pages into the book. And it was suddenly like I picked up the radio station and I could write, and the rest of the book went quite quickly. And it was really for that reason. I felt I, once I started it, I, I kind of tuned, I, I tuned in, I could hear Kavanagh. And it's, all, it's not quite like taking dictation, but it almost is slightly. And that was the main reason I, I felt I could finish it quicker, because it was sort of, I felt that the, I had a known set of technical problems that I'd sort of worked with before. Um, I mean, the other thing, I was spinning, spinning more plates. I'd, I'd, I'd almost say that first-person books are easier, partly because they have this thing, you either solve it or you don't, about the voice. And if you do solve it, then it actually, it, it goes along fairly fluently, in my experience. You've just said it took you about 30 pages in, and you found Kavanagh's voice. And this came from a dream, originally. When you started writing, did you know how it would end? 
Because you were already writing another novel, so this was something you felt you had to do? Yeah, no, the 30 pages in was the, the, in the debt to pleasure, the sentence that sort of unlocked it for me was about 30 pages into the book, and I then went back and started again. Now, with Kavanaugh, I had it from the, actually the first sentence, which is just, it's cold on the wall, was the point when I felt I got it. You know, I could, I could hear him. And, and as I said, I'd sort of thought about the, the, the character, the world, the story, and um, the, the piece I left out was the ending. I, do, I have to know the ending. Um, there often there are lots of things en route I don't know, but it's like it's almost like a sort of buttress-like thing. I have to know both sides of it, and I think I, I, yeah, I've, not, I've never I've never started a novel without knowing. I don't always have the last sentence, but I certainly know the last the last thing in the book. But it's you know it's odd because there are t- there are two types of novelists. There are ones like me who do plan it and see where it's going. And there's the other sort who have no idea about any of it and just sit down to write and it goes sentence by sentence. And I, I actually don't believe that's humanly possible. But the only reason I accept it's possible is because I've got lots of friends who swear they do it. It seems completely mad to me. I've got no idea how people write you know, 150,000 word book where they literally don't know what's happening you know, next sentence. Uh, but I'm 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 that I'm in the other camp. I'm more of a more of a, a plotter. I first wanted to thank you, as someone who read financial pages. I only d- understood what a collateral collateralized debt obligation was after reading Woods, which I found immensely informative. Oh, thank you. But on the wall, did you start writing your novel before Trump and Brexit, which are basically both about walls. Um, it, so it was, I'd say it was about, it was before the Brexit vote, uh, and Trump was one of 13 Republican candidates at that point. And I would literally have bet my house on him not getting the Republican nomination, let alone the presidency. So I keep being asked questions about Trump's wall, and it's getting to the point where I I think the English language needs a new sentence that means exactly the same as I don't know. Because I'm really using that, I'm really kind of going hard after that, I don't know. I mean, I do think there's something about Trump's thing about, you you know, the wall is like the wheel, they're both medieval, is, you know, hilariously wrong from a historical point of view. I mean, he's 5,000 years out, in fact. He's half of human history out. But I think what he means is that there's something about them that we can all imagine very completely and very directly, that a wall is sort of a complete thing in everyone's head. We have no difficulty in latching onto the idea of it. And in his sort of brutal way of thinking in tabloid images. I think that's the thing he's latched onto with the wall. It's that everyone immediately gets it. And I think that's the accident about the, the, the metaphorical residence, you know, that you know, walls, are, walls are always with us in one form or another. It's just unfortunately at the moment they happen to be more, more with us than usual. I suppose the only other thing I'd say is that I, was, I, I did think about projecting I wasn't 
trying to be prophetic and I wasn't trying to say this is the future but I was thinking in terms of trend lines in the present being extended you know the way we're heading like the like on those you know graphs of all sorts financial graphs economic graphs they, there's the dotted bit that stretches into the future and I was thinking about the dotted bit in terms of climate and in terms of trends in our society and politics so in one hand it's completely accidental but on the other hand maybe in terms of things traveling along that dotted line it's it's less of a coincidence unfortunately yeah and before we take another question i was just going to say that if you come across a book by someone called todd miller the, I don't think no, so. And I didn't know about it until earlier today, but in our next issue, we're about to, there's a, a piece by a guy called Mackenzie Funk, which discusses this book. But this is a post-Trump book published in September 2017 that is to do with the, the, the combination of militarization and, and climate change and the effect it has on, on and it's, and one mm. of his, the things he apparently says is that, is talking about the the, the 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 vast amounts of migration that'll 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 come, and claims that inside the Trump administration they know this is happening with 50 million, 250 million people on the move, and even at high levels. Um, anyway, it just seems that you know your thoughts are a year earlier. But I hadn't, I hadn't said Todd Miller. Todd I'll look Miller. out for that. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Thank you. Um, I'd just like to say as well how much I've enjoyed some of your writings, in particular the article, Are We Having Fun Yet?, which I particularly enjoyed about the banks. Um, you talked about the trend lines, and I just wondered what your view was of Steven Pinker's argument, which he puts sort of in a question, which he says, well, if you didn't know who you were going to be, when in history would you most like to be born? And, you know, for me, the answer is right now. You know, this seems to be the best time in the history of the world, and yet this is not kind of the vibes I'm getting back from you. I just wondered what your view of that point of view was. No, I, I, I agree with that. I think, indeed, I've said in print before, I think that this, the citizens of the, um, the, the, the liberal Western democracies are the, are the luckiest people who've ever lived in terms of life chances, which doesn't mean that these societies are perfect. And in fact, the idea that they're not perfect and can get better is really important. But you know, if, would you rather be you know, one of us or, or a, an Egyptian pharaoh? Well, you'd rather, I think you'd rather be one of us. I think, though, that when we're talking about the, the, the climate, there's a real sting in that. There's a, there's a twist, which is that part of the reason our societies are, are so you know, developed is to do with the level of material comfort and material, unthinking material ease and bounty that the rest of the world can't have because we've used it up. The, the, citizens of the developed and emerging world look at our lives and want a life like ours, which, as Pinker says, you know, who else would you rather be? Images that they can see all the time, wherever they are. They can pull the phone out of their pocket and look at an image of this life, and they can't have it 
without us using up the planet. And one of the very difficult things about climate change as a social and political problem is, is the sheer unfairness and inequity of the fact that we've, to avoid catastrophic change, we are in effect forbidding people from having the life that we have. I don't have a solution to that, but I think it's a real, you know, it's a giant swallow of vinegar that you have to take to rinse down Pinker's basically true assertions about how, how happy and comfortable our societies are. Two observations, really. Um, thank you for the way in which time drags and also time suddenly gets far too fast. I really enjoyed those pieces of the book. And I also think there's a theme about the intergenerational conflict. Um, it reminded me very much of uh, Raymond Briggs's Ethel and Ernest, which didn't have the same issues, but uh, you know, certainly that conflict was there. And I think it's something that, you know, again, I appreciated. Um, I had a question though, because I haven't heard Kavanagh's ambition mentioned. And he certainly had an ambition Thank you. Yes, yeah, so he, he, he wants to get out. I mean, he's seen that one of the things I thought about but didn't really put in the book is about how the society works and came to the conclusion that it's a sort of, it's an oligarchic pretend democracy. And not, a, you know, a sort of darker version of what some would say we have now, um, where it's the same people are permanently in charge, but with a a different veneer. And Kavanagh knows that there's an elite and he desperately wants to get into it. He wants to escape his background, escape his upbringing. He knows he has a sort of narrow, straightened life and there are other people who have bigger lives. And he, he wants one of them. And I, I, I wanted him to have that sort of, uh, almost like a, a Stondhal character, kind of desperate. He's a desperately ambitious provincial boy who knows that you know, there's a bigger life somewhere and and you know various things if you've read the book as you know various things come along which make that a, a bit more complicated but as i said that was one of the things i thought about that you have this sort of pretend democracy functioning in a kind of wartime like thing that does actually have within it an elite who, who live with a different set of rules uh, i wondered what happened to your dream what happened to it after you started to write the book I, I stopped having it I, I, I directly as soon as I started. Do you know what? That's really odd. I've never, I haven't thought about that. <laughs> um, but maybe as Freud would have predicted, um, as soon as I started writing the book, I stopped having, I stopped having the dream. And I don't know, because as I say, it was, partly, it was partly an almost willed or self-hypnotic thing. So I don't know if I could do it on purpose now. If I try, I might try tonight. <laughs> um, make a note to myself. Must do. Um, but my hunch would be that um, my hunch would be that I, I kind of it's that, like that the image I was talking about about you know the the door in the attic that once you've opened it you don't want to go go there again. My hunch would be that I um, I sort of can't. That's bothering me now. Great. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you very much, John. Um, thank you, John Lanchester. Thank you, Daniel Saul, very much. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. 
For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.